Well, it's good to be back here in the pulpit. I'm usually here once a month to give Brian a, uh, a well-deserved break. As you notice, Brian's not here today. He says he's feeling under the weather, but I think it's a bowl of chicken wings and the Super Bowl, to be very honest. Now, he's feeling under the weather, so we, uh, we pray a quick recovery for Pastor Brian. And um, I don't know how many of you have been reading through the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, since I've been doing this series on the woman at the well. But I'm very intrigued by this whole, this whole text of the Samaritan woman. Um, um, the more I study it, the more I'm drawn into it, and the more I see how great Christ is, and how much love that Christ had in His heart for people. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, even a little bit, you can't help but notice Jesus was not all, at all, interested in the religious life as usual. He just wasn't. And he certainly did not come to reinforce national Israel's fault or failed, I should say, failed religious system. What he did was he inaugurated brand new Life, And we can see in John's Gospel, the main thread that sews this Gospel together is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And all, without exception, whether Jew or Gentile or Samaritan, whoever believes in Him will have eternal life in His name. A brand new, spanking new life. And if you remember when I preached on the wedding at Cana, in chapter 2, Jesus made... Wine out of water. The wine symbolized the superiority of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. It was brand new wine. Again in chapter 2, Jesus, the cleansing of the temple. Christ himself is the new temple. Then in chapter 3, the new birth presented to Nicodemus. And before that in chapter 2 again we can say John's baptism was new. It wasn't the baptism for proselytes who were well, people were converted to Judaism. It was a new baptism, a baptism of repentance, preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. They were all about the new. And then, starting in chapter 3, we see a series of conversations with people, and Jesus introduces them to something brand new, life in Him. First with Nicodemus, and then in chapter 4, a Samaritan woman, which uh, where we are presently. And again in chapter 4, where he converses with a Gentile uh, official. And then in chapter 5, he has a conversation with a crippled man. So his conversation is with a Jew, a Samaritan, a Gentile, and a cripple. You can see with me, Jesus is no respecter of persons. He came to seek and save the lost and give them, brand, give them a brand new life, eternal life. But the beauty of this new life is this. It never gets old. You buy a brand new car, right? You pull it out of the showroom. As soon as you pull it out of the showroom, it loses its value. It begins to deteriorate. It becomes old. When I was a child and I got brand new toys, I was very excited. Christmas time, you could all relate to this. Or your birthday, you got something brand new. It was new for a few days and then it wound, you, you wind up putting it in the pile with the other old toys. Not so with Christ. 
The new birth stays new. Jesus Christ the Messiah not only inaugurates this new, but empowers believers by His Holy Spirit to continue forever in this newness of life. And we are not talking here of something new that happened 2,000 years ago and now it's old. No, no. This new life stays new forever. It will be new one billion years from now as if we were born again today. And Jesus Christ will always be fresh and new. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I don't know about you. I can, I can only speak for myself. But Christ gets sweeter every day. He gets greater to me every day. And in our present study of the Samaritan woman, we see yet another new thing. But before we talk about this new thing, it's necessary to go back and retell the story briefly. Jesus and his disciples left Judea and departed for Galilee. But to get to Galilee, Jesus could have traveled three ways. He could have went the coastal road. as I, I, we, we spoke about this the last couple of times. Uh, he could have went to the coastal road or to the east side through Perea. Uh, the Jordan, which was, which was where most Jews traveled, especially at the time of the major festivals. And the reason why they didn't travel directly to Galilee through, some, to, through Samaria was because of their hatred of, of, of the Samaritans. And we talked about that last time. There was a great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, but Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. And arriving in the town of Samaria, Jesus was tired, sits by a well, and the Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. And she was amazed that he would ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Because, like I said, they hated each other. Jews and Samaritans. And as I said the last time, Jesus not only spoke to a Samaritan, he spoke to a Samaritan woman. And not only a Samaritan woman, but a sinful Samaritan woman. In the Jewish mind, all three were, you never, never, never do that. Jesus had crossed the boundary line because he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Dick Lucas spells it out correctly. If this story means anything, it spells out that the Messiah, Jesus, is now crossing barriers into the pagan world. The journey is just beginning that will take his good news to the ends of the earth. So Jesus initiates a conversation with her, which will lead to a life-changing experience for the Samaritan woman. And little did she know, is she would never be the same. How many of you were the same when you were born again? You, you weren't the same. So the woman's confused about Jesus asking her for a drink. But Jesus turns it around and offers her living water. And the woman, still confused, still unable to believe, reveals her lack of spiritual understanding. She doesn't understand the gift that he was offering, nor the giver. Jesus, now in verse, in verse 16, gets to the heart of the matter. He exposes her sin. Go call your husband. The woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have had five husbands. And you're now living with a man who's not your husband. She was exposed. Jesus' x-ray vision called his omniscience saw right into the very depth of our soul. And this is where we ended the last time. So let's read our text starting at verse 19 through 26. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive you that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to a woman, Believe me, the hour is 
excuse me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Again, Jesus is revealing the new. He's revealing, and this is what we're going to look at tonight. He's revealing new worship, the nature of worship, and new revelation. Jesus is the Messiah. We see here the woman observed something very carefully in, 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 as, as, he was, as she was conversing with Jesus. It wasn't business as usual, not only in her understanding of the Messiah, but her worship of the Father. So Jesus exposes her sin, and the woman responds with verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. She seems to begin to understand, hey, what he's saying about me is not from man, but this is from God. I understand you are a prophet. Now exactly how she meant it may, may not be as clear as many have made it as clear to be. Did she try to change the subject because she was shocked and troubled at what Jesus said? Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Was she changing the subject? Or was she affirming that Christ's knowledge of a sinful lifestyle was accurate? And she wondered where she would go to worship and seek God. Our fathers, our fathers worshipped over here. You say we should worship over here. However, however she meant it, she brought up a long-standing argument between the Jews and the Samaritans concerning the temple. Both temples were built on mountains. The Samaritans on Mount Gerasim, and they argued that their temple was authorized by Moses. And that Jerusalem was the place that fulfilled the prediction of God's dwelling. You can see that in Deuteronomy 27.4 and Deuteronomy 12.5. And of course the Jews' temple was built on Mount Moriah. But once again Jesus changed the direction of the Samaritan woman's thoughts. And gives her an abrupt commentary on worship. Let's read verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What is Jesus telling her? Is he saying it doesn't matter how one worships? And I believe some think that today. It doesn't matter how you worship as long as you're worshiping God. But context plays an important role in interpretation. And, if you, and, we'll, and we'll get to it, but if you read verses 21 to 24, it abolishes the idea that how one worship is irrelevant. What Jesus is saying in verse 21 is this. The place of worship is irrelevant. We know when Jesus spoke these words, and this is why we, we know the place of worship is irrelevant. In other words, you could come here and worship, or you could be anywhere in worship. It's not a building, as many denominations will have you believe. When we, we know when Jesus spoke these words, it was only approximately 37 years later, about 70 AD, when it, where a Jew, 
where a Jew, Jewish revolt broke out against Rome, you remember that, and the temple at Jerusalem would be destroyed and thousands of Samaritans would be slaughtered on Mount Gerasim. It is not the place that's the issue Jesus was getting at, but rather the nature of worship. That's what Jesus was getting at, not the place, but the nature. Under the new covenant, which was not yet inaugurated because Christ had not yet been crucified and raised from the dead, the place of worship would be obsolete under the new covenant. But the nature of worship will be what God would desire. Hence, at this point, the Samaritans had a deficiency in worship. Listen to verse 22. Jesus said to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, the Jews didn't know what they worshipped, and the Samaritans did not. Jesus was saying, you don't know what you're worship, worshipping, the Jews do. Why? Because the Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament. All that, it, all that they adhered to was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Old Testament. So they lacked the full revelation that it contained. On the other hand, the Jews... Worship was based on the true knowledge of God through the self-revelation in the pages of Scripture. So they had the whole Old Testament where the Samaritans only had the Pentateuch. Again, Jesus didn't say it doesn't matter whether one worshipped uh, the Samaritan way or the Jewish way. Quite the opposite. Jesus declared one way was wrong and one way was right. The Jews had the correct way that God Himself ordained. He chose the Jews. And he says salvation is from the Jews. The gospel came to them. Then the rest of the world. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To who? The Jew first. And also to the Greek. So it came to the Jew first. Salvation comes through the Jew. And the source of salvation is the Messiah. He was a Jew. So, the gospel came through the nation of Israel, but it also came through the Jewish Messiah. Jesus now introduces true worship. Verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Just let me wet my whistle a little bit. <clears throat> so what is he saying? He's saying, what he's saying is the Samaritans don't know what they worship, and the Jews do, but, he says, but, and that's a pretty important conjunction. But the hour is coming when the place of worship will be irrelevant. And the authentic worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why? Because this is what God the Father wants. He's seeking, he's looking for true worshipers. And before we identify what true worship is based on, I want to briefly comment on the Father. Aussie Sproul in his commentary on John says this first Christians in the 21st century tend to have a woeful ignorance of the Old Testament with this ignorance comes ignorance of the character of God the Father 
And we think Christianity centers exclusively around Jesus. Obviously, we are called um, to honor, exalt, and worship Christ. But we need to remember that Christ came in the first place to reconcile us to the Father. And he continues to say, there is a, there is a certain sense in which the supreme focus of our worship on Sunday morning is to the Father in spirit and in truth. Again, we worship the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we need to have the majesty of the Father in all His greatness in our minds as we worship. So this is what Jesus revealed to us. The Father seeks true worship, excuse me, true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Why do true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth? Because God, he says, is spirit. God is not made up of physical matter and does not have a material body, but has an existence that is everywhere present. And that's why worship is not confined to one place. God is spirit. He's everywhere. Remember in the Old Testament, Israel was commanded not to make idols in the form of anything. In creation, as the other nations did, Exodus 24, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. <clears throat> God is spirit, not an exalted man, as some have said. He is called the invisible God in a number of places. In the New Testament, in Colossians, in 1 Timothy, in, in Hebrews. Who, and he also says, who no man has seen or can't see and dwells in an unapproachable light. Meaning, as if enshrouded himself with this light, making it the image of his hidden glory. So if God is spirit and no one has ever seen him, how do we know him? He reveals himself in Scripture and through his Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says this. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So because God is spirit, true unadulterated worship must be in spirit and in truth. So Jesus now introduces true worship. And clearly shows this Samaritan woman... It's not the place that's the issue, but the nature. So how should one worship? Two ways. In spirit, okay, that's the first way. Second way is in truth. Let's look at spirit first. God seeks those who will worship in spirit. It does not say the spirit, capital S, but in spirit, small s. In other words, Jesus is not talking about worshipping in the Holy Spirit or according to the Holy Spirit. Although, we should do that too. But over here, in this context, he's talking about worshipping with or in the human spirit, in our human spirits. He wants us to worship from the very depth of our inner being, our hearts. Unless we worship from the depths of our hearts, it's not authentic worship. Spurgeon says, God does not regard our voices, He hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. Kent Yu says, Sometimes we sing, but we do not worship. Sometimes we pray with our lips, but worship does not take place. Sometimes we give, but we do not worship. And sometimes we do none of these things, none of these things but are in deepest worship. 
I think, think C.S. Lewis says it well, real well. He says the perfect church service would be the one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. And I like what Alistair Beck says concerning preachers. He says, when you're preaching, he says, the greatest prayer you could have for your congregation is not that they could walk out saying, what a great preacher, but they could walk out and say, what a great God we serve. Amen. Turn with me to Acts 16, starting at verse 25. We're talking about worshipping in the Spirit. From your heart. And I think this passage of Scripture shows us that it is possible to worship God from your heart no matter what the circumstances are in your life. No matter what you're going through. And you know as well as I know that you, there were times in your life when you're going through hard times, you're sick, you got something wrong on the job or whatever, and your mind and your heart are filled with so many things that it's very difficult to worship God. But listen with Paul and Silas did. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. <clears throat> In the midst of suffering, and make no mistake about it, please, they were in a dungeon. There were smells beyond belief, human excretion, I mean beyond human comprehension. They were in chains. They had wounds all over their body. They were suffering deeply. More than any of us can fathom in this room. And that's why I would encourage, I would love to see Sonship over this year Every one of you subscribing to Voice of the Martyr magazine. Every one of us. It, it's free. If you want to send a, a donation, you, you should because it will help keep um, the, you know, the ministry going. And every time I read that magazine, I am humbled about the suffering in other countries. The pastors that will be imprisoned... And, and they leave their families for however length of time, a year, two years, whatever it is, and they come out after being abused in prison, and their only crime was they preached the gospel. And they come out of prison, and they go back out to preaching the gospel, because they love their master, Christ, but they love people too. And they realize that their life is not their own, they've been bought with a price. Do yourself a favor. Subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs. If you need any information on that, I'll be glad to give it to you. It's a, free, it's a free magazine. They'll send it to you every month. You'll read that magazine, and you'll put everything in its right perspective. So, we understand that Paul was, you know, suffering, but yet there was a deep, hot worship. Worship in spirit can happen anywhere. Anywhere but can only happen for the human heart bent toward God. When the Holy Spirit touches the human spirit, that's when it happens. Jesus wanted this Samaritan woman to come to Him for living water. So then, and only then, 
would she be able to worship in spirit? Jeremiah understood that people worship outwardly, but not from their hearts. When he complained to the Lord and said in Jeremiah 12 too, You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are in their mouth and far from their heart. And Jesus speaking prophetically against the, the Pharisees, quoting the prophet Isaiah said in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, He said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So in spirit, to worship in spirit is required for worship, but also in truth. Okay, so we worship in spirit, that's really basically from the depths of your heart. Okay, and then he says in truth, we are to worship God according to what is true about Him. In other words, worship occurs when we worship according to truth. If we do not worship according to truth, true worship cannot take place. The book of Leviticus is a manual for worship. It's the manual for worship of God. God wanted the offerings, the sacrifice. He sees, that was when he was setting up the whole Levitical priesthood. And he wanted it to be done exactly the way he prescribed. To be done exactly as he, as he commanded. Otherwise, it was unacceptable. We see that with Eli the priest, his two sons. And we see that with the first king of Israel, King Saul. When he didn't wait for Samuel. They didn't do it according to the prescribed plan of God. And what happened? They were rejected. Actually, Eli, Eli's two sons lost their lives, and King Saul lost his kingdom, and then eventually died. <clears throat> so we, we must worship according to truth. And this is one reason why we compel you at Sonship to get familiar with God's Word. To worship Him according to His truth. Get familiar with it. Now that doesn't mean, and I want to clarify something, and a new Christian comes, you know, a new Christian is born again and he's all excited about Christ. He doesn't know everything about God. He may not know as much as someone who's been in the Lord 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. Of course not. God accepts that worship as long as they're progressing in truth and, move, and, and, they're, and they're worshiping according to the truth to the light they have. We want to think right about God. The church in America today is not thinking right about God. Truth is the most important thought you can entertain what God is like. Every failure in worship or doctrinal practice can be traced back to wrong thoughts about God. As a matter of fact, wrong thinking about God is, guess what? If you're thinking wrong about God, it's idolatry. Why? Because we're thinking of God other than He is. Just because we don't bow down to images does not mean we're free from idolatry. Listen to Romans 1 verses 20 through 25. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile 
In their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I remember Dr. John MacArthur said one time, he doesn't even get, he, he tries to avoid getting images of who, what Christ looked like in his head. Because he doesn't want to worship anything, you know, he doesn't want to wa- worship an image in his mind. That's why Jesus said, worship him in spirit and in truth, according to the Word of God. One of the things we learned, we, 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 we just finished a course on systematic theology, and I remember the first one we, we took uh, was called Fundamentals of the Faith. It's by Grace Community Church. And I, I remember we, we, one of the things we studied was the attributes of God. And I remember, you remember Carl was part of our congregation and he took the course with us. And when I taught him uh, on the attributes of God, I noticed something that changed in his prayer life. He began to worship God, and, and in his prayers, he began to like honor God in his attributes. He's, he's, he prayed something, I'm just not saying exactly how he prayed, but he would say something like, Dear eternal God, omniscient God, God who knows all things. He was honoring God for who he was. You know, he was getting right thoughts about God. He was able to, go, to worship God in spirit and in truth. So that's why we encourage you and compel you Get familiar with the Bible. We must be people of the Word. It's the clearest revelation of God we have. We need to think. Worship is not mindless. I love uh, uh, Ravi Zacharias' ministry. The name of his ministry is Let My People Think. I love that. Let my. I remember one time, seriously, I was at his service. And I remember... I was standing in the back and I was listening to the minister, Minister, if you want to call him a minister, I, I don't even know at this point in my life if that was a true minister. <clears throat> Maybe he was, but something, he, he was talking about something and he said, now don't try to understand it, just believe it. You know, and I thought to myself, no, I'm going to try to understand it. Now there's certain things you can't understand. You can't understand full, you, you don't have full comprehension of the Trinity. Who can have a full comprehension, understanding of the Trinity. But we accept it because it's the Word of God. But God wants us to use our mind, engage our thinking. He wants us to think through the faith. And it doesn't happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. It's little by little. It's verse by verse. Prayer meeting by prayer meeting. Church service by church service. Devotion by devotion. Studying a text by studying a text. That's how it happens. <clears throat> so we worship in spirit from our hearts and in truth according to God's holy word. But we must avoid the extremes of dead orthodoxy, truth and no spirit. There are churches that worship in truth but there's no spirit. And zealous heterodoxy, spirit but no truth. <clears throat> and I've been in churches like that many times. Matter of fact, I've grown up in churches like that, and 
you know, I know, and I don't say this as a criticism to the whole movement, but charismatic movement and the Pentecostal movement have a tendency to to worship in spirit but not in truth. They sort of push the doctrine a little bit aside. Um, and then you have some orthodox church that they're just cold in their worship. <clears throat> so we come up to the revelation. She still, the Samaritan woman, still didn't fully understand all that Jesus was saying. So she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. <clears throat> but I think from these words we can deduce that she understood Christ the Messiah was predicted and coming and would explain and clarify all the frustration, all the frustrating, uh, the frustrating religious questions. So she had some sort of idea. She had hope. But Christ is now revealed. And Christ answers her in verse 26. He says, I who speak to you am he. By the way, this is, this is the climax of this text. I think it's the main point actually in John's Gospel. As a matter of fact, I think it's the main point in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Old Testament, Christ the Messiah was concealed. In the New Testament, Christ the Messiah is revealed. I who speak to you am he. By the way, um, in the original Greek, in the original language, it's not I who speak to you am he. It's I am who speak to you. I am. There's no he. Meaning divinity. 23 times in John's Gospels, he says, I am. I am divine. I am the resurrection. I am the life. 23 times he says things on that level. <clears throat> Who is he? Who is he? Who is Jesus? That's the important question you and I will ever answer. He's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. Up to this point, Jesus avoided telling the Jewish people who he was because of the political and military expectations they had for the Messiah. They wanted someone to crush the Roman oppression. But he reveals himself to this woman, this sinful woman, this sinful Samaritan woman. Christ is no respecter of persons. He didn't reveal, he didn't say to the Jewish people, I am the Messiah. He says it to the Samaritan. He came to do the Father's will, to seek and save the lost, and draw them to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now I want to briefly talk to you in closing about what God expects from us today, and what goes on in churches concerning their worship services. And I don't think it's any different today, I really don't, than it was in the first century, or even earlier from the very beginning. God always sought after true worshipers. He always did. And before my conversion... My worship was cold, dead, and dry. I was brought up in a denomination. I went to church every Sunday. I went to confession once a year. It was ritualistic. Everything I did was ritualistic. My prayers were repetitious. My prayers were dry. There was no spirit, no heart, and certainly no truth. 
However, the Father drew me to His Son Jesus. My heart became soft and I deeply desired to worship the God of the universe. That's what happened to me. And little by little, I began opening up to God. It was no more, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It was not like that anymore. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you today. Thank you for saving my soul. Stuff like that started happening. I remember when I first got saved and I was on the Bell Parkway going to JFK to work. And I remember just looking up and just crying out to the Father and talking to Him and having a conversation with Him. There was definitely a heart prayer, a heart worship. And as I learned the truth of His Word, I became more enthusiastic about worship. I attended a very emotional church, Pentecostal, which really taught me worship from the heart. However, doctrine seemed to be at times in the background. The truth. Many charismatics, not all, but many focus on in the spirit, not in truth. We must worship in spirit and in truth. We must have that balance. Let your emotions be involved. Don't be afraid to let your emotions be involved in worship, but worship according to truth. We always say this here, at Sonship, <clears throat> we're reformed in our theology, but charismatic in our affection. And this was Jesus' mission. The Messiah came to reconcile us to the Father, so we would worship Him in fullness. And Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well shows us three things we can deduce from this story. Number one, salvation comes to those who recognize their deepest need for spiritual life. Number two, salvation comes to those who confess and repent of their sins. And number three, salvation comes to those who embrace Jesus as their Messiah. When this happens, worshiping in the Spirit and in truth occur with gladness. By the way, one more reality is the Father seeks you to worship Him. Verse 23 says, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. We always look at it like, I'm seeking the Father, or I'm seeking God. No, God is seeking you. The Bible is very clear, before conversion, no one seeks God. He seeks you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And like Zephaniah, what he says in Zephaniah 3.17, we don't have to read the whole verse, he says, He will exult over you with loud singing. He seeks you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is a wonderful thing about worship. The expectancy within us is just a shadow of God's expectancy. God will rejoice over you with singing. God seeks worshipers. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are seeking true worshipers. You are seeking to reveal yourself as the Messiah. No longer just of Israel, but of the entire world. You are seeking people to come into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, and then to become followers of you, Lord, so they could be true, genuine worshipers of you. People that worship you from the depths of their heart and according to the truth of your word. God, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you here tonight, that they will become a true worshiper of you. I pray that you would draw them unto yourself, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.